0: I'm Linda. I'm a grateful member of Al-Anon. Okay, we're on step 10. Um, I told you before, earlier that when I first came to the program, there were steps that I liked and steps that I didn't like. And step 10 was one of the steps that I liked. It was a chosen step. Um, for lots of the wrong reasons, but it was still a step that I liked. I found it very easy to say I was sorry, and um, I used that term to smooth things over for years. It was just the pat word, I'm sorry, oh, I'm sorry, oh, I didn't mean to do that, I'm sorry. It was a, word that kept, it was a phrase that kept peace, it was a phrase that sort of got me off the hook, it was a phrase that I thought made you feel better, I overused it. Um, I remember hearing one time an Alan N speak, and she said she felt that she was indirectly responsible for World War II. And, and for that she was very sorry. And I really, really related to that because I, I used it for all the wrong reasons. So when I got to Step 10, I thought I could do it. And I also liked it because I thought I could do it better than Bob could do it was one of the steps that I thought I had. Um, I was a little bit ahead of him on. Um, My second sponsor, I had two sponsors for a period of about seven years, and um, I chose a second sponsor because my first sponsor quit going to meetings, and one of my rules is that I need to have a sponsor who attends meetings regularly, has a sponsor, and works the steps. And so my rules sort of got jarred a little so I had this second sponsor, and one day she and I were talking about Step 10, and I was telling her how well I did it and how easy it was for me. And she said, Linda, you know, I don't see anywhere in there that it says you're sorry. It, it just says when you were wrong, promptly admitted it. So she said, from now on, when you are making amends and you are doing Step 10, I want you to use the words, I was wrong. Well, let me tell you. The difference between I'm sorry, which could just roll off my tongue, to I am wrong, (laughs) was profound. It was like somebody hit me and took all the wind out of me. It was so difficult to do. And we also talked about, you know, taking responsibility and saying you're wrong when you're wrong, not just to smooth things over. And we talked about the whole thing. But anyway, um, that was a, a, a real big difference for me. And now when I do say that, Make amends to people. I try not to say I'm sorry or I try to say it in conjunction with, but I always say, I was wrong. I wish I hadn't done it that way. Or I was wrong when I did that. I'm sorry about that. But thanks to Marcy, I I cannot do that step without saying I'm wrong. There's now become a new phase of it for me. And the new phase is I was the kind of person who, when you were wrong, especially when Bob or the kids were wrong, which, of course, wasn't very often. <laughs> but when that, and the, the slight chance that that would occur, I was the kind of person who would rub it in and make it very, very clear to them that not only were they wrong, but that they had inconvenienced me. And I started to grow up just recently on that one and realize that Once it's happened, and I'll tell you, I still—it it is not that the inclination or the desire has gone away. It has not gone away at all. I still would love to rub your nose in it when I get a chance, but I try very hard. That is a new part of my program that I'm trying very, very hard not to do. So when you've done something wrong, I've had to do something different because of it. My new plan of attack is not to tell you to allow myself to be the person who handles it, to take the responsibility and not, in other words, sort of like not spank you. You know, you spilt the milk, you know. And um, it's very difficult, but I like it a whole lot. Now I'm going to turn it over to Bob.
1: You're wrong so often you would think you would be more used to it by now, I think. <laughs> continue to take personal inventory when we were wrong promptly admitted it <coughs> um, <coughs> most of us have a sense in the fifth step of um, having really cleaned house you know that we, we really have emptied ourselves out and uh, this is a way to not fill ourselves back up you know most of us, if we aren't careful, we just keep throwing rocks in our knapsack and uh, can find ourselves weighted down again if we aren't careful. And uh, this is a very appropriate tool for not burdening ourselves as we go about our business and recovery. Um, and again, I want to say let's not be neurotic about these things, you know. Take real events and, and, uh, and go deal with them. I think people who are on a spiritual walk and are looking for growth and looking for the full measure of recovery, uh, continuing to take an inventory, continuing to examine, continuing to question ourselves in a healthy, not non-neurotic way uh, is one of the greatest tools we have. Uh, not having to be right. I'll tell you, there is nothing sweeter than, you know, it's like heroin being right. You know, I mean, it, it is... Uh, uh, for a lot of people, that's what life's about, looking good and being right. And uh, if you aren't careful, there's you know, those are the booby prizes. What you get if you're right is you don't get relationship. You know, a lot of times if you want to maintain relationship, being right is something that you have to subjugate, put in second position to go do that. So, I, again, it's an attitude that I think we look to ourselves and we question. Um both our motives and our behavior. Uh, uh, and I think it's an attitude that, that will stand us in good stead. And it's something that will guarantee or at least uh, allow us to have an opportunity that we don't reburden ourselves. The 11th step says, After prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood him praying only for the knowledge of His will for us and the power to carry that out. Uh, Our book, uh, I believe that as we become more recovered, we become closer to our God. I believe that the process of finding God is a process of coming home. I believe that much of the angst that we have in life is being separated from God in the first place. And that, you know, kind of the, you have great mythology in Iceland, you know, some of the Bible, you know, and I don't mean to offend anybody, is also considered by some to be mythology when we talk about the Adam and Eve event, an original sin. And uh, some people think that the original sin is just the, the, the whole concept of being separated from God and that our mythic journey is to come back to God, is to rejoin ourselves, to find our whole, to restore our integrity. And that most of us in that process are experiencing the pain of separation, the sense of loneliness, the sense of difference, you know, that our ego, uh, you know, only two choices. You either have your ego and intellect running the show or you have your God centered. Okay? When your ego and intellect are running the show, you're different, you're separate, you know, and you're in opposition to everything around you. And you know and all of us in life are trying to reduce pain and go towards pleasure okay it doesn't work but i mean that is our program if you took most human beings what we're trying to do is avoid pain and move towards pleasure okay now we get into the western way of thinking and you know most of us are looking for our redemption most of us are looking for our solution most of you know in things you know in a person you know, if I get the right person, if I get the right house, if I get the right car, if I wear the right clothes, if I have the right body, if I have, you know, there's always something, you know, we're looking for what's next. What do you want? I want Just a little bit more. You know, we are people that go to an all-you-can-eat place for $5, and we want $10 worth. Is there, I, mean, there is, I mean, enough is only a concept. We have never experienced enough. You know. Enough does not exist for us. And, I don't know, there's so many things, uh, you know, I just kind of want Step 11 and 12 maybe to be kind of a wrap-up for us. but, But, in a sense, we are people who, I believe, that have started out perfectly intact and whole. Nothing missing. Complete. But... What was complete and whole was like this perfect magnet. And we have dragged this magnet through the junkyard of life. It's a very powerful magnet. And when we showed up in AA, it was this big, with pieces of metal and pieces of junk that we have accumulated in the process of living our lives. That we built layer after layer after layer of protection. That we built a machine... For our protection from pain, for our protection from looking at things that we didn't want to see. And that the process of finding God, and the process of finding peace, and the process of finding joy is one of removal, not of addition. That we take away the barriers that are between us and our experience of a higher power. That, you know, by action, by action, in AA, we take off a piece of metal off that big ball and someday we will see a a shine of light come through from that perfect place. That underneath it all we are whole and intact with nothing missing. That our spiritual journey is one of coming home to wholeness. Not repairing. And these are just words because in some ways we do repair and in some ways we do improve and in some ways we... Do change, but the fact is, after 36 years of my being in AA, I'm the same guy. (laughs) I'm old and gray and fat, but I'm the same guy. I mean, inside, I'm still 32, 33. I don't know what the number is, but it's it's in the 30s. And uh, uh, so, your spirit doesn't age. You know, your outside ages. You know, but your spirit doesn't age. And most of us have been so used to looking at each other like we're our Chevrolet. you know. So when we want to do something to feel better, we go get the Chevrolet painted. We put new wheels on it, we get it painted, we get it polished, and we forget we're not the Chevrolet, we're the driver. And all the drivers are the same. When they step out of the Chevrolet, all the drivers are the same. They're just spirits. They're not different, they're the same. And I think that every once in a while we get a sense of that. Every once in a while we get touched in a way when we come in the program that we know the answer has something to do with a power greater than ourselves. That we know that the answer doesn't have to do with the new watch or the new coat or the new house or the new boyfriend or the new girlfriend or the new something, you know. Even though we may be attracted to that, that somehow we've done enough of that. I'm 60 years old. I just turned 60 a couple of months ago. cannot believe that number. That number just doesn't seem real to me. Uh, And I'm sort of retired. I'm sort of, my son is now working with my partner. My partner's older. My partner has 40 years of sobriety. And we've been partners for 32 years. 34 years. Wow. 34 years. And he grew up two blocks away from me. And his younger brother was my best friend. The younger brother has twenty three years of sobriety. My partner called on all three of our children to bring them in the program. When all three of our kids' pants got on fire, they went to talk to Terry, you know. So we are we have always been connected. We've been connected in faith and we've been connected in the program and he was the first fellow I knew in recovery. And it has been a it has been a big deal. So uh The bad news is is that we have a disease that if you don't deal with it, it's going to kill us. And it's going to ruin the lives of four to ten people around us. The good news is that in order to get well from it, you have to learn how to live. You have to force yourself to learn how to live. You have to force yourself, because of your illness, to put spiritual principles in action in your life. Now, as a result of putting spiritual principles in action in your life... You will have a be- most of us will have a better life than we would have had had we never had the disease. Because we will be forced to do things that are good for us that we would not have the discipline to do if we didn't have the motivation of having a disease that would kill us if we didn't take the action. Now most of us have a very old idea of God most of us have personified god we have an idea of god as a person but we don't have but by the time we have gone through this program one of the great things that we have now is we start to have an experience of god not an idea of god not a belief of god we actually have a number of ways that we can know god not about god That we can know God. So someone says, who is God? That's a head question. Everybody in this room has had some experiences where we know God. Not about God. Not who God is. That is the process of wholeness. That is the process of Now, when we increase our, praying only for the knowledge, you know, looking to increase our conscious contact with God as we understand Him, praying only for the knowledge of His will for us and the power to carry that out. I believe that we have to do some spiritual reading and alcohol. I have been a member of a men's group for the last 17 years, and there are a dozen men in that group, and all but three of us are recovered alcoholics, but it's not an AA group, and it's a group for spiritual growth. It's a group called, we call Quest. We're in the spiritual quest. And we take different books. And and most of us have been sober 20-plus years. You know, so we're not grabbing newcomers. You know, we're not grabbing people at, you know, three weeks of sobriety and putting them in this group. Uh, Because I don't think we should do that. You know, we're, we're looking, you know, but I think once you've got a few years of sobriety, I think picking up books like Sermon on the Mount and picking up books that have been historically, you know, important and now Anonymous and picking up A Road Less Traveled or that book I told you about, you know, places that scare you. Broadening, you're, you know, because all of us get stuck from time to time. When you're stuck, do something that you've never done before. Go to a group that you've never attended before. Reach, talk to someone and get, and get advice on a book that might help you. In your spirit, if your attitude is good, those books aren't going to hurt you, and they're going to are going to stimulate you to do something. And I think that many of us don't have enough stimulation. If you don't think you're being programmed, the average person watches in our our country. I don't know what it is anymore. It's like four and a half hours of television. You watch four and a half hours of television, you get fifteen thousand commercials a year. I think uh, that may be a month. It is just astounding. Okay? Now, the message in that is you're not okay. Your body's not okay. Your bank account's not okay. Your house is not okay. You're not okay until you have this product. Subtly, our whole system of consumerism is to subtly make us unhappy, insecure, and not okay with ourselves. So if you wonder sometimes why you're a little flat. <laughs> I mean, that message is everywhere, and the message is you shouldn't have to suffer, poor baby. You're having a tough time. Take a pill. I mean, or no, but you, but but the idea is, if if you're suffering, something's wrong. Well, the fact is, is life is sometimes hard. That's not pessimistic. It's just a fact. You're going to have your turn in the barrel. You can't be sober for. 30 years without having a turn in the barrel. You can't be married for a long period of time without having t- really tough patches. That's what life is. You know? And you survive them. You get through them. Sometimes you just hang on and, and, and endure a period of time. You don't look very smart and you don't look very good during some of those times, but that's just life. And if you've got a good sponsor, every once in a while they'll tell you, just hang on, kid. I mean, this is a really tough patch. You're a good kid. You've done a great job. Just hang on. I can, my sponsor has told me that a couple of times. I'm sorry you're having a tough time. You know, He doesn't always say, you know, well, you're having a tough time because you did this wrong and that wrong. And that. Sometimes he would tell me that. But sometimes I'm just, the circumstances are tough. you got a sick kid and, you're, you know, all of a sudden that deal you thought was going to go through, work doesn't go through. There are tough times. But if you're not doing something to maintain your spiritual condition, and in three or four places in the big book, the book talks about maintaining and enlarging our spiritual condition. When they talk about Jim, the guy who drank the scotch, the car salesman. And he said he drank because he failed to enlarge his spiritual condition. One of the great questions I asked myself with about eight years of sobriety around the time I had that spiritual renaissance was, you know, the ADC you know, A, that we were alcoholic and couldn't manage our own lives, that B, probably no human power could have relieved our alcoholism, but C, God could and would if he were sought. I ask myself, Bob, how much time have you spent seeking God? Now, I don't want an answer for that, but that's a powerful question. I think going to meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous is seeking God. But I think that can also be a rationalization. I think once in a while we should do something specifically that is seeking God. I don't know exactly what that is. I don't know if that's going to church. I don't know if that's reading a book. I don't know if that's talking to a minister. I don't know if that's having a conversation on spirituality with your sponsor. But if you're going to maintain and enlarge your spiritual condition, asking yourself from time to time what you're doing to maintain and enlarge your spiritual condition to improve your conscious contact. Because when you're going to change, when you're going to improve, the very first thing you have to do is to tell the truth about something. You have to label it. You have to name it. So I tell you, when I named my alcoholism, it made an enormous difference in my life. But most of us named it. Most of us admitted we were alcoholic. Things changed. The next thing you do is you raise it in your consciousness. It's no longer out in the garage. It is in front of you. What you can see and be with, you can manage. What you can't see and can't be with manages you. When I could not be with my alcoholism, it managed me. Once I could admit my alcoholism and raised it in my consciousness and it was in my conscious attention, I could start to deal with and manage my recovery with help. Then I direct my will, like I do in the third step, towards that goal that I have of not drinking towards the goal that I have of increasing my spiritual contact, my growth. Now when you do those three things you have you have put in place the beginning steps of change and improvement. You tell you name it you tell the truth you know I want to increase my conscious contact with the God of my understanding. you raise it in your consciousness, you put it up above the table so it's not under the table, out of sight. And then you direct your attention and intention towards it, which is what we do in all the things that we do in the program. So it's kind of directing your will towards that. And when you do that, you start to then have that, when it talks in the book, it was in page 92 and 93, about that, that second sense, about have being that contact with God, that we have, start to have ways of knowing, that, intu- that intuitive sort of thing, not just the mind sort of thing. That we start to have a sense of knowing that's beyond the mind. And when you do that, what most of us are looking for, you know, if, if you looked at someone and said, What do you want? I said, I want to be happy. I like a distinction that a man, a well known author today, said just recently, the author of the book that we we're talking about. And he said, Happiness is dependent upon your perception that the circumstances in your life are positive. But joy and peace are not contingent upon your perception that the circumstances in your life are positive. You can have joy and peace regardless of the circumstances in your life. You can have joy and peace regardless of any other person in your life. That is available to you at all times. Those are not contingent upon circumstances. Happiness is Often the way, we, the way we use the word happiness often is. So without knowing it, a lot of us don't pay much attention to our spiritual condition and our spiritual practice. In order to maintain our recovery, you need a practice. You need a practice of meetings. You need a practice of sponsor. You need a practice of sponsees. You need a practice of reading the book. But you need a practice of increasing your conscious contact with God Praying only for the knowledge of His will for us and the power to carry that out. Meditation is one of the most profound ways that one that we can maintain our spiritual condition. Uh, it often is difficult with those of us who have very busy minds. Um, I have uh, had an on again and off again relationship with meditation for 30 years. Um, I've had periods where I do it well, and I've had periods where I've I have not done it, and I've had periods where I don't do it well. But for the last three years, I have had a, a, a very steady uh, especially maybe the last five years, I've had a very steady practice of meditation. I think more of us would meditate if we had less if we had a little bit more information about the process. And when, when I'm talking about meditation, I'm talking about sitting in a chair much like that. I have cushions and I have a special room that I sometimes do it in, but most of the time, I'm just seated in a chair with a straight back with my feet flat on the floor, with my spine straight up and down, with my hands on the, on the top of my thighs. I close my eyes. Some people do not close their eyes. I, and the thing that I hold my attention on is my breath. I, watch, I, I pay attention to my out-breath. Now, there are literally hundreds of books on meditation and how to meditate. There are tapes about how to do this. It is not complicated. A lot of friends of mine have gone to TM, have paid someone to instruct them. I think that that's great. I think it's fine. There are are practices of meditation that use mantras. But I'm telling you that the very first thing you will find out when you try to meditate is how busy your mind is. Because most of us feel the process of meditation is to quiet your mind. I'll tell you, baby, that is like a gerbil tract. There is something going through that. It is like a... Grand Central Station. There are trains going through that in every different direction, every second of the day.
0: Uh,
1: it is, uh, and I think we're under the illusion that we can control our thinking. We're under the illusion that we think, and I think that it controls us. Okay, because if you control it, turn it off. And if any of you have tried to meditate, you can't turn it off. But what you can do is detach yourself from it. As a friend of mine said, it's like meditating in a river. You sink to the bottom, you grab a hold of the weeds, and you let the boats go by. You do not have to get on every train that goes through the station. You cannot, they are like clouds in the sky. Let them go by. You do not have to interact with them. But what most of us do, every once in a while, one's got Velcro on it and it grabs us and we're you know, off in that thought, okay? But what meditation allows me to do, rather than just quiet my mind, which my mind has become more quiet over the period of time, is I'm actually able to see how noisy my mind is. I'm actually able to see my mind and be somewhat detached from my mind. I, I can't tell you that I was a guy, when I thought it, I did it. Okay? It was printed on my eyeball. There was, that was my reality. The thought came out, it was my rea- It never occurred to me that it wasn't accurate, that I might be seeing it wrong. I just thought it was my gift from the universe that was I had to go with it.
0: Okay?
1: Well, when every idea you have is printed on your eyeball and that's your reality, there is no choice. But now what happens to me is I get the thought comes and it's out here. I get to look at it and I get to say, holy cow, I haven't, had, I haven't been that nuts in quite a while. Okay? But I used to get a thought reaction, thought reaction, thought reaction. I was a monkey on a string. You put a quarter in me and push B5, I play B5. Okay? But now when you put a quarter in me and you push B5, I get to choose whether I'm going to play B5. That's like being let out of jail. I have a gap between the thought in my action. And in that gap, I am a human being. I don't think I had that gap for the first 15 years of my recovery. I have felt most of my life like I am holding back a team of about six horses and not all that successfully. It just, you know, that's just the way it was. And today... I feel like it's down to three, and I'd like it to get down where I don't feel like I'm holding anything back, but I still do feel like I'm holding back three horses. And uh, it isn't perfect today. It's just quieter today. It's more peaceful today. I I'm, de- I'm be deviled today. Meditation is one of the biggest pieces of that. If I, you know, if I could encourage any of you to start the practice of meditation, I think you will be greatly benefited as our program supports and reflects. Do you have anything you want to talk about now? I got you. In the 11th step, you want me to go into step 12? Yeah? Having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps, we try to carry this message to alcoholics and to practice these principles in all our affairs. Uh, so what is the process we've had a spiritual awakening as a result of the work we've done on the preceding steps and i'll I'll tell you i've said those words hundreds of times over the last number of years and it's only been the last 10 years where i really paid attention to the fact that it's telling me that i'm more awake so if you want to know how the growth happens in the program i believe it does it by waking us up I believe that when I struck my children, I did it when I was asleep. I'm responsible. Please don't hear that, I don't, that, I don't, that I'm not responsible. I was responsible for it. But I believe I was walking in my sleep. I was, when you wake up, you don't do things like that. You know, Chuck Chamberlain, one of the great men of Alcoholics Anonymous, uh, who's, who's been dead quite a number of years on the West Coast, I remember him looking at me one time and he said, The man on the street committing great crimes right now is doing the best he knows according to his own light. When he has more light, he will do better. So what we do in AA is as we get more light, as, as we become more conscious, as we become more aware. Now all of us know people that are just like they're unconscious. They just they walk in a room and they just, it's like there's no, I tell the guys I sponsor, you see those shadows out there? Those are people. <laughs> you know? I mean, it's like there's no one else there, okay and, and, and that's how self-centered many of us are. you know I don't have much time well, just just talk about me. you know I mean we just I mean it is we are just obsessed with ourselves. We cannot literally and, and everybody else is just a player in our drama. We only see other people as they are reflected, and related to us as we take these steps as we do this work as we inventory as we become more honest as you know as the picture as our picture of reality becomes more realistic we become more awake when you become more awake you then start to have a choice about what you do and what you put in your life. When you're completely asleep, there is no choice. It does it to you. You're a monkey on a string. That's just all there is. When you surrender, what you have done is you have now subordinated your ego. If it's a true surrender, your ego collapses. It's not there. It's not home. When your ego collapses, you are as teachable as you have ever been in your life. You are like an open slate People can write on it's just you're you're a clearing for learning. It is one of the we talk about that like the honeymoon in AA. It is one of the best periods of time. It's like that early process of falling in love. Your ego just collapses and you just you just melt into each other. That no, that's erotic. It does not last. It is just for the propagation of humanity. You know reality returns in a relatively short period of time as it does with our collapse of our ego in AA. Okay? But if we have a program and if we have a practice, there's enough humility in the way we practice that your ego can stay as a junior partner. You're never going to get rid of your ego. That's your space suit. You've got to have your spacesuit to take the trip. You can't take the tri- trip without your space suit. But it can be your junior partner. Your God-centeredness and your intuition, not your intellect, your intuition, can be the guiding forces of your life and that connection to your higher power. So having had a spiritual awakening, so as a result of taking the steps, we are now more awake and more conscious. As a result of being more awake and more conscious, we live our lives in an elevated way compared to how we lived our lives before. And for those of us that have been sober 10 or 15 years, we know that, We're more aware than we were when we were three years sober. And that every year, maybe not every year, but over a period of time, incrementally, we gain, if we're doing some work, incrementally, we gain awareness. That's the spiritual awakening. It is very cool. It is very profound. It is the source of everything that you do. That's how you change. You don't change by resistance. You change by waking up. You wake up by doing the work, and the work is described in our book. And the work is and we are in a community of people who support us doing the work. Sometimes we aren't very nice to each other, but almost always we want each other to do well in our recovery. I think that that is an extraordinary thing to have available to each other. That we are in a village, that we're in a community, that we're in a community where we want each other to do well in our recovery. Almost never do you ever hear anybody say, I hope that person gets drunk. Once in a while you might hear that, but most of us don't feel that way. We don't want that. We might even be mad at someone, but we would never want that. We want, we want good for each other. That's a wonderful thing to have available to us, and that we have that in our meetings and in our community. And it's a treasure. So having had a spiritual awakening, we all these tests. We practice these principles and we try to carry the message to other alcoholics. Uh, it is uh, the opportunity to carry the message to other alcoholics is one of the greatest opportunities that we have. Uh, sponsorship and uh, doing 12-step work is as good as it gets. One of the reasons that my program, such as it is, has been in places that I sponsored people. And and when you sponsor people, they keep you honest. In order to tell them to read the book, you have to read the book. In order to tell them to go to meetings, you have to go to meetings. In order to tell them how they should treat their children, you have to treat your children better. So what happens to you is that in in a phony way, you start improving so that you can... Tell the people you're working with to do the correct thing because you don't want to tell them to do what you've been doing. <laughs> so, I mean, and that's the way it has always worked. It, it, it is just the best. It is, it is and, and, and almost always you get in conversations to help people. You get people that come to you that you have conversations with them that you need to have with yourself. Okay? One of the great wonders is, is that you're on a 12 step call or you're working with a sponsee. And all of a sudden, something comes through your mouth that is pretty profound, absolutely right on, and you never knew it until the moment you said it. And you, it came through you, not from you. And you get to have that experience, and you just, <laughs> it is, you just go, wow, you know, very cool. And it is very cool, because at that moment, you weren't there. At that moment, the universe came through you. At that moment, God went right through you to the other person that you were there, and you weren't. The best times of your life, you're not there. And that stops the moment you are aware of what happened. That moment closes and becomes a concept. Our tradition of carrying our message to the practicing alcoholic, our tradition of sharing our experience, strength, and hope, and not our ideology, not our psychology, not our thinking, but our experience, is the bedrock of our fellowship. I don't know of a place that we could go that you could find the combination of spirituality and practicality and accessibility. There are places that have spirituality... But the, it's not as accessible to me as it is in AA. You can almost touch it in AA. You, on a regular basis, get to see miracles. You get to, on a regular basis, you get to see transformations, not just improvements. You get to see transformations. I mean, you used to have to run a donkey and go to Damascus to see what you can see regularly in Alcoholics Anonymous meetings. So... And all you have to do in those 12-step work is share your story. Share your life. Help someone. Befriend someone. Sometimes these speakers that come and talk to you sponsor 20 or 30 or many, many people. It isn't meant for everybody to sponsor a lot of people, but it would be nice if everybody had the chance to sponsor one or two. Okay, to, To grab a newcomer who we know is new and doesn't know many people and just buy them a cup of coffee. And if you do that over a period of time, you'll... I was talking with one of the younger members of the group, and he said, I sponsor people, but I haven't had much success. I didn't have any success with the people that I sponsored until I was over five years. And I sponsored a lot of people. (laughs) Except, as my sponsor pointed out, I was a success in that I maintained my sobriety. But every time they had a young person, they gave them to me. Or not every time, but often they gave them to me. And a lot of the people I worked with weren't ready, or didn't want Alcoholics Anonymous. I was just this charger on my horse going everywhere, you know, (coughs) doing that. So service is, there are two two ways to become enlightened, two, two major paths. One is the monastic path, and the other is the service path, the Mother Teresa path. Okay? And I'm not suggesting that we all have the capability to become Sister Teresa, but I'm telling you something. If you watch people who who do service, it has a way of, of, of you gathering wisdom and strength over a period of time in your life. There is nothing better, as Dr. Bob talked about, than love and service. It is really, when you want to talk about the principles that will put us in, in good stead in our practice, it is love and service. So we practice these principles in all our affairs. Um, One of the great things I think you should be able to ask, to be a great AA member, to be a good AA member, is not just to attend meetings and to sponsor people and to give talks. To be a great AA member is to be a better spouse, to be a better boyfriend or girlfriend, to be a better worker, to be a better neighbor, to be a better employee that you should be able to go to your parents or to the people that are close to you and ask the question, is Mary a better person today because of her involvement in Alcoholics Anonymous? You know, that's the mark of whether or not we practice the principles in all our affairs and whether or not we're a good member of AA. It isn't just what we do in AA. It is what we do in the world. The purpose of our recovery is to restore us to life, not just to make AA our life, not to build a tent over AA, and have it be our life. So it has been, uh, before we say goodbye, come on up here. Do you have anything you want to say on?
0: No, I'm just sort of overwhelmed here. I, I don't have anything to add. I, honestly, I'm in total agreement. Uh, sort of profound right now. Yeah. I wish you could have seen us when
1: we were 24 and 22 years old.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: okay. Uh just
0: yesterday
1: for me. <laughs> uh, she came in Al-Anon, and when you talked to the women that were in that group, they said they had everything they could do not to tell her to run away from me. They were baffled by the fact and that... And
0: they'd she, say, you know he's an alcoholic and you're going to marry him? <laughs> yes. And, and we were in love,
1: you know. And I had just joined AA, and we were engaged. And these women just couldn't... These women were... Had drinking alcoholics, and they just thought, "Why would you ever, if you had a chance to get out, get out now? Get out, get out now!" now." Uh, So maybe when we stand here, we sound like, "Oh, we know a lot. We didn't know anything." Now we had a good head start. I, I, the story of my life is, I was born on third base, and and have been congratulating myself for hitting a triple. Okay, I had great parents, and I had a great education, and I've been healthy. That's a pretty good head start. Okay, but we didn't know anything about being married, anything about kids. I was a catastrophe about work, and we built our life in the program. And I'll tell you, it is just—it's been a great ride. It, it, it is just—if you have God in the middle of your marriage, in that relationship, uh, you can take on the world. A good relationship is a shit eating machine. <laughs> Whatever that's
0: so eloquent. Well that's,
1: that's I, I don't mean I don't mean to be crude, but I'm telling you that a good relationship will digest anything you throw at it. It is just it's not a question about whether our relationship is going to dissolve because something comes our way that is difficult. Our relationship will take that on and we'll be okay. Because we're not alone, and we have a program, and we're intact, you know, and we practice the principles imperfectly in most of our affairs. (laughs) And uh, I can't tell you, there is something about going to another country. About four weeks ago, I was in New York giving a talk, and I had lunch at the General Service Office of Alcoholics Anonymous with Greg Muth, who who is the manager of the general service office and who I understand is going to be in Iceland sometime in the near future so he is the he is the head employee of alcoholics anonymous the head servant of alcoholics anonymous and he's quite a man he's a he's a great guy and he's been sober about 30 years and the stories that he tells about aa in china and in india and in Russia and the different places around the world and the troubles that they are having and the successes that they are having, I mean, I just start crying about halfway through the meal. So when you go someplace, when I go, I have so much available to me in my country and in my city, but when I come here and I see what you're doing and what you've done in the last seven or eight years, it it is overwhelming to me how positive and good what you are doing is. It is, it is just <coughs> terrific. So, thank you for the opportunity to celebrate that with you this weekend. You've been, it's just been wonderful.
0: Let's just keep having fun. <laughs>